Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Storytelling is at the heart of today's show. The exhibition on view now at the Atlanta History Center, out of many, one, is a collection of portraits of American immigrants by former President George W. Bush. When four aspiring writers each pay $5,000 for one session with a famous older author, he rips their work and lives apart in a play called Seminar. We'll hear about this scathing comedy opening at the Academy Theater in Hapeville. First, Steve Jobs revolutionized the way we think about the world, how we acquire information, the way we communicate, and how we access music. The story of his life and how he viewed his own mortality are at the essence of the opera by Mason Bates and Mark Campbell, The Revolution of Steve Jobs. A new production by Tomers Wulun and the Atlanta Opera opens Saturday. Joining me now via Zoom to talk about the opera is the award-winning librettist Mark Campbell. Thank you so much, Mark. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you, Lois. It's so good to be back, and I'm I'm thrilled to have another opera in Atlanta. It's it's just a joy. It's a, it's a joy to be in the city. Well, I've read that you originally didn't want to write an opera <laughs> about Steve Jobs' life. Why not? And what persuaded you finally? Yes, it was the composer Mason Bates' idea to write an opera about Steve Jobs. Uh, originally, he called me and said, I, I want to work on an opera with you. And he neglected to tell me the subject matter. And I said yes, because I wanted to work with Mason. He's a he's an incredible composer, a real driving force in electronic music, especially. Uh, and then he told me the subject and I was, oh no, not Steve Jobs. <laughs> he's Steve Jobs, my original impression of him, which was somewhat incorrect, was that he was just an impossible person who mistreated his employees. 
And, and his I, daughter and wife, if I remember. Yeah, yeah to say not, also his family members. Um, I also thought it was going to be an impossible task. And I actually still think it's an impossible task to write an opera about someone who is so familiar to everybody in the world. We, everybody who knows of Steve Jobs has their own version of the man. We, he was such a public figure. So it's very hard to undo the public's perception of this person and create what is essentially a fictional story based on some facts. So it's sort of a lose-lose situation. However, as I started reading about the man, I discovered ways that I could humanize him and create the story that, that Mason saw initially with this man. He's an important figure and his work will be with us for a very long time. Mm. The title of the show has parentheses around the capital R in revolution, which implies that the opera takes us through the evolution of Steve Jobs. How did Jobs' life mirror the evolution of Apple? Well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the title because it's kind of an interesting choice. Uh, the revolution of Steve Jobs refers not only to the technological revolution that he helped create, but the revolution in the story. The story is told in a circular narrative. And so I wanted to play on the word revolution, but also the evolution of the man from being this creative figure early in his life to becoming sort of a corporate, forgive me, I don't know if I can use this word, bastard, to finally toward the end of his life, understanding that human connection is the greatest value that we have as people. Uh, and I think that he has lost that at a certain point in his life. And in fact, that's pretty much what the opera is about. You are dying, Steve. I know. And you resent the diminishment what was it I said in that speech years ago? I don't know. You said so many foolish things. can't connect the dots going forward. You can only connect them going backwards. Pretty good. Must have gotten that from me. Thank you for giving us more insight into the title because... Well, let me... Can, can I mention one other thing about the title that I love? Please. Because Because it annoys people so much. When you type... <laughs> In Microsoft Word, when you type parentheses, are parentheses, it immediately converts to a registration mark. And <laughs> I've had so many people complain about that, and I love it. It makes me very happy. <laughs> well, is it also, you know, kind of Steve thumbing his nose at Microsoft from the beyond? To me, it is, yes. That was my interpretation, too. And I don't mind some thumbing of the nose at these corporations. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about 
how the story is told. It's nonlinear, correct? Correct. It, like I said before, it's sort of a circular story. We begin when Steve Jobs is 10 years old and his father gives him a work table and says, you can take things apart and you can make things. And that's the beginning of a memory of Steve Jobs of 2007. Most of the story takes place in 2007 when Steve Jobs was diagnosed with cancer and started facing his own mortality. That idea of looking at your own mortality is what gets this story going. And he takes, he basically takes a circular path, looking at the memories in his life and all of the major events in his life that formed him, including his work with Steve Wozniak, his uh, marrying and impregnating a woman and then denying that the child was his, but then more importantly, his meeting Lorene Powell, which completely altered how he viewed life. And you, you focus on that relationship between Steve Jobs and his wife, Lorene Powell, in what you were, I think, suggesting was the dramatic license you needed to get to the heart of your portrayal of his life. Can you tell us more about their relationship? You're absolutely correct. Lorreen Powell grounded Steve Jobs. She humanized him. She brought out that child in him that was at the workbench at age 10 and said, go back to that, find yourself. The other thing that Lorreen Powell Jobs did was help Steve understand his mortality, help him understand that he's dying, that dying is, a, is part of life. Just need to finish a few more things. It's a very moving. She has a, the, the, I mean, I call her a character now, but the uh, Lorene Powell Jobs has a very strong aria toward the end of the show where she says, you must accept this, Steve. You must accept that you're dying. I will help you. I will be with you. But if you can't accept it, I will not be with you. I, ca I can't stick around and watch this. She was a driving force in his life. She's a beautiful person who is still doing great work. Did you contact her, Mark? No, I didn't. You know, I, I never did. I would love to meet her. Uh, maybe she's listening to this and is going to give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that she'd appreciate the humanity you attribute to her providing Steve Jobs. I would hope she would. 
she was just a guiding force and spirit in his life, and I want to honor that. Well, speaking of the humanity, you mentioned what you thought about his being so nasty uh, uh, to his employees and effectively to everyone around him. How do you bring out the perfectionist in his character while also showing a softer side? The perfectionist side of his character, which is well documented and, and sometimes very comic, as you may know, like he hated, for example, lighting outlets. He thought they were ugly. The rest of us just viewed them as utilitarian and he had to have them hidden behind walls. I understand that in a way for anyone who attempts to be precise with language. I mean, I'm not putting myself on the same level as Steve Jobs, but I keyed into that aspect of his character. I also, for many years, worked in an advertising studio as an art director. I found myself in the libretto saying things that I had actually said to my designers in the studio, and they weren't always nice. I could turn on the Miranda Priestley pretty easily in that situation. You know, Miranda Priestley, the character from Devil Wears Prada. Yes. And it was interesting about Steve Jobs in that he could be so cold, even sadistic at times. I think that part of that came from his ego taking over after becoming such a corporate success. And one thing that I love about John Moore, who plays our Steve Jobs here, is that he can turn on the coldness and the meanness and the really dark side of Steve Jobs on a dime. He sings like an angel, but he and he moves like a dancer, but he can really play that that aspect of Steve Jobs and the, the aspect that can just cut down a human being with two words. He's a brilliant singer, and I, I am very excited to see him again in Atlanta perform this role. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Mark Campbell, librettist for the opera The Revolution of Steve Jobs. Our artistic director, Tomos Fulun, has created a new production. What can you tell us about it? Well, it's really exciting because this opera opened at Santa Fe Opera in 2017. And it was a big production, of course, um, at Santa Fe. And they did a, just a really amazing job of producing it. And it has since gone to Indiana and Seattle and will be going to San Francisco Opera in 2023, I believe. But at the same time, Tomer came forward and said, there are so many opera companies that want to do this, but they can't afford the original production. And he said, would you, how would you feel about me doing it? And I said, yes, I would love for you to do it because he did such brilliant work with another opera that I wrote called Silent Night. Oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Well, thank you. And, and it was like, well, of course, Tomer, how would I say no? And we worked really closely together on this. And the production, I would say that this production really brings out Mason's and my attempt to understand this character and humanize Steve Jobs and make him more sympathetic to the audience. Tomer followed certain things in the libretto that, that weren't followed quite as closely in, in Santa Fe. And I think we have a, a stellar production. Like it's, it's great to look at. 
his design team has done just really scintillating work. But at the same time, I feel a stronger sense of the relationships between the characters. And it does emerge almost as more of a meditation on mortality than anything else. The composer, Mason Bates, is famous for using technology in his compositions. How do we experience those elements in the music for the revolution of Steve Jobs? Well, you know, he'd have to answer that because I don't know the technical side of programming uh, electronic music with the orchestra, and he's an expert at it. I think that that's an important aspect of this opera because of the subject matter. I don't know if an opera about Steve Jobs would be would work as a chamber opera with a string quintet. It just doesn't seem like they merge. But with Steve Jobs, an electronic component was, was called for, and Mason exploited it so perfectly. But I think what I love most about Mason's music is the drive and the propulsion in it and the sense of excitement. I've never heard music like this in an opera house, and it just has such energy and the opera is only an hour and a half, no intermission, and it just moves from story to story to story. And I really credit that to, to the, that incredible drive in Mason's music. And I also have to mention that we have uh, the original conductor, maestro Michael Christie will be in Atlanta. And, um, you know, he was with this opera from the beginning, and really knows how to bring out the best in Mason's music. I remember reading that Mason found some old Apple computers that he actually records sounds from some of the old computers and keyboards. Is, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. He, that's, I guess, you, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a nerd. Composers are such nerds. They love that stuff. And I'm sure there will be people in the audience who will recognize some of those sounds. I know that he got the proper telephone. There's a scene where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak try to get free phone calls by duplicating the sounds of the phone at a, at a time when phones had tones and you needed to duplicate those to get free long distance calls. And I know Mason found that exact, those exact tones. So yeah, yeah, it's a nice addition to the, to the score. I wish I were informed about it more and then I could talk about it, but it's just, you know, it's great for nerds and there will be our share of those in the audience, I hope. Mark Campbell, librettist for the opera The Revolution of Steve Jobs with music by Mason Bates. The new production by director Tomer's Walloon for the Atlanta Opera 
opens tomorrow with four performances at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center through May 8th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll hear about the Atlanta History Center's new exhibition of portraits highlighting America's immigrants. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The motto which appears in Latin on the great seal of the United States is a pluribus unum, meaning out of many, one. The idea of a unified nation from people of many different backgrounds and beliefs inspired former President George W. Bush to create portraits of America's immigrants. They also appear in a book of the same name. The paintings are on view in a special exhibition at the Atlanta History Center through July 4th. Joining me now via Zoom are the Atlanta History Center's president and CEO, Sheffield Hale, with Laura Collins, director of the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. We're very excited to be here. Thank you. What inspired President Bush to create this collection? Well, you know, I think that if you look at the work that President Bush did in office, and you look at the work that the Bush Institute has done since he and Mrs. Bush left office, you know that immigration reform is a top priority for him. And at the Bush Institute, we really believe that America benefits from immigration. But we need uh, an immigration system that really benefits our 21st century economy and ensures our future prosperity, vitality, and security. But it's a really complicated topic. And it's still ultimately, despite the politics and the policy and all of the data, it's about human beings. And what better way to capture the stories and the contributions of these immigrants than through art. And President Bush painted these portraits as a way to really bring this conversation back to the contributions of these individuals. 
When did he begin painting the portrait? Oh, you know, I think I first heard of it probably in 2019. One of my colleagues, Joseph Kim, who is featured in the book and in the exhibit, was a North Korean refugee. And I believe he was one of the first immigrants painted for this project. So this is when this started. And, you know, he's been painting since he left office. He likes to talk about his journey as a painter. He's had a previous exhibit of his paintings up here that was portraits of veterans. So this is a medium that he's used many times to really convey the thoughts that he has about particular topics. Hmm. There are 43 portraits on view in this show, a not-so-coincidental nod to the fact that George W. Bush was 43rd president of the United States. How did he decide whom to depict? What was his selection process for these portraits? Each of these portraits is of an immigrant that President Bush has come to know. And so when you look at the exhibit, you'll see some people who are very famous, who it will be very obvious to you how he knows them. People like Dirk Nowitzki, the basketball player from the Dallas Mavericks, people like Madeleine Albright or Henry Kissinger. And then you'll get to see some of the more ordinary people, uh, people like you and me. Uh, some of them have been participants in the leadership programs that we run here at the Bush Institute. Some of them were people that he knew in business or growing up as a child. And some of them are people that we've actually naturalized here at the Bush Institute, who he met, and Mrs. Bush met them as well, and talked to and got to know when they were here to become citizens. Toward the end of his presidency, I think you touched upon the fact that President Bush tried to pass a bill that would provide a path towards citizenship for immigrants, DACA children, but ultimately the Senate voted against the immigration policy overhaul. Can you enumerate on some of those key changes that he wanted for America's immigration system? Sure. You know, I think when you look at the effort in 2006 to reform our immigration system, it's not very dissimilar from a lot of the efforts that you see today because we haven't had a lot of changes in our immigration system in the last 20 to 30 years. And really, it, everything is geared towards making it an immigration system that works better and also making sure that we're a secure nation. President Bush likes to say that we can be both a secure nation and a welcoming one at the same time. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guests are Laura Collins from the George W. Bush Institute and the Atlanta History Center CEO, Sheffield Hale. I'm wondering if you received any criticism pushback. And Sheffield, if you anticipate any about the fact that here's this presentation of a years-long concern of, of a long-time dedication to immigration reform and a great deal of humanity um, shown toward those who want to become citizens— all good things, 
And the fact that during President Bush's administration, some of his advisors fomented anti-Islamic sentiment in this country. Have you heard anything about those aspects of his administration? Well, the answer is no and not yet, <laughs> but um, everything's possible. I mean, for us, the issue is not any particular immigration policy. The, the great thing about this exhibit, it's about the stories of the people on the wall. And those stories are extremely inspiring. It's really not a policy exhibit. It's an exhibit about the humanity of refugees and immigrants of all kinds. And uh, that's the story. And for us, it's a part of a, the democratic um, focus that we have. We're focusing on democracy, the History Center, between now and 2026. And the resolution of how you deal with immigration is, is the essence of democracy. And it's something that uh, you should be involved in and, and care about, no matter what policy you support. So for, for us, it's really focus on the people, and then maybe you'll have a, a, a perspective or a reason to get involved with trying to figure out if the policy is correct or there should be another policy. But we're not advocating anything in particular. Um, the Bush Center has a, has a policy. The Atlanta History Center doesn't. But we're very excited to be able to share these stories. Laurie, you mentioned your colleague, Joseph Kim. Can you share a couple of other stories that are particularly moving attached to these portraits? Sure. You know, I think they're all moving in, in their own ways, but a few that come to mind are Roya Maboub, who was an Afghan refugee, and she was a refugee as a child, then she went, was able to go back to Afghanistan she ended up uh, being one of our participants in presidential leadership scholars here. If you've heard about the Afghan girls robotics team, you know a little bit about the work that Roya does. She's such a wonderful example of what a country like the United States can do in providing opportunities, opportunities that don't exist for a lot of people around the world based on who they were born to be and where they were born. Another good example of that is Someone who was raised in Atlanta, Dilafruz Konigoyeva, she was born in Tajikistan. Her family actually won the diversity visa lottery, which is something that is widely misunderstood in the United States, but it's a way for people abroad to apply to become immigrants when they don't have a family sponsor in the United States, which is one of the most common ways that immigrants come here. And when she grew up in Tajikistan, her family was the beneficiary of U.S. foreign assistance. There was food aid brought in. They were a former Soviet Republic. When her family was able to leave there, the United States honored their green cards from the diversity lottery. Even though their time had passed there, they were able to move to the United States. Her family ultimately settled in Atlanta. And she grew up here. She was also a member of our presidential leadership scholars class. And now she does similar work on foreign aid and assistance. How does depicting a face to an accompanied story change the way in which we think about America's immigrants? I think it forces you to think of them as, as individuals. You know, your friends and your neighbors and the people sitting in the pew next to you. There's so much that you can see about a person when you are looking at them as someone next to you instead of someone faceless or nameless who might appear to be intimidating or scary. But 
all of us interact with immigrants on a daily basis, and we're not afraid of them because they're people we know. Um, and this exhibit is similar. You see the humanity in their faces and you're able to identify with their story based on that. They're not nameless and faceless. This is for both of you. Did this exhibition make you reflect on your own story as an American? From my standpoint, uh, it, it certainly has has made me, you know, reflect on how fortunate I am to be in this country and how lucky we are to be able to have people like those in the exhibit who are um, coming to this country. When you read the stories of these of these people and you understand what they've gone through and then what they've been able to accomplish, you realize that people around the world want to come here for all sorts of different reasons. And some of them, it's voluntary and some of it's because they're fleeing something but they all have the gumption to get up and try to come here to make a better life. And, and that inspires me. And that gives me hope for the future of this country. You know, one of the great privileges of working in immigration policy is I get to think about this question a lot. And, you know, for me, I think a lot about my own family's immigration story and what the circumstances look like for them that were so very different than the circumstances facing immigrants today. And my great grandparents came through Ellis Island. I'm sure many of your listeners have similar stories, but they came before 1920. And before 1920, we had very few restrictions on who could come and immigrate to the United States. And so you know, they were people with very little formal education and they worked hard and they raised their family and, and that's their story. And I'm here today doing this work. Part of the exhibit shows how much more complicated that path would be for them today because of the myriad laws and rules and regulations that govern how we vet people, where they can come from, who can sponsor them. And, and so it really is always in the back of my mind um, that yes, we are still a very welcoming country. Yes, we are enriched so much by the contributions of all of the immigrants, not just the people whose portraits are painted, but that we have a system that is very difficult to navigate. And it is very different from the sort of romantic notions that I think many of us have about what immigration looked like a hundred years ago. Does the immigration policy work you do at the center have, do you have lobbying? How, how do you hope to implement these ideas? That's a really great question. We are not lobbyists. Uh, we do not advocate for or against any particular piece of legislation. We talk about the data and the facts and the policies that we think should be in place. The Atlanta History Center CEO, Sheffield Hale. He was joined by Laura Collins of the George W. Bush Institute. The exhibition, Out of Many, One, Portraits of American Immigrants, is on view at the Atlanta History Center through July 4th. More information is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, a creative writing course goes sideways in Academy Theater's new production seminar, Amplifying Atlanta, 
This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightses. Thank you for listening. In the play seminar, a group of aspiring writers have their work and lives ripped apart during a 10-week writing course. Tony Award-nominated actor Alan Rickman returned to Broadway to perform in the world premiere in 2011. Now, Atlanta's longest-running professional theater, the Academy Theater in Hapeville, is presenting a production of Seminar. The show opens tonight, April 29th, and runs through May 8th. Director Robert Drake joins me now via Zoom with actor Casey Cutmore, who plays the role of Kate. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you for having having us. us. How would you summarize the plot of Seminar? I would say that Seminar has four young writers at the beginning of their career trying to figure out how to get to where they want to be. And they don't yet realize what it's going to cost them. And the writer they hire to teach the seminar is all too happy to show them. Casey, what can you tell us about your character, Kate? Oh, geez, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I adore Kate. The best metaphor I can come up with for her is that she's a chrysalis. She is this girl who's, you know, very smart and well-educated, one might say over-educated, and is hiding behind herself. And for her, it's a story about just getting out of her own way. Hmm. The story is set in the literary world. Did you relate to her frustrations about making it in theater? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Um, One of the things that drew me to this play initially is In every intense acting training world I've been in, there is a cult of personality surrounding a brilliant middle-aged actor. (laughs) And having, you know, an equity Shakespeare actor ask you why you're afraid of intimacy at nine in the morning on a Monday is (laughs) (laughs) very similar to the vibe that's going on with this story. Oh, wow. Yeah, in the Broadway production of Seminar, The lead role of Leonard was portrayed by the marvelous British actor Alan Rickman, very charismatic, and it's such a magnificent delivery of snarl. (laughs) Who plays Leonard in the Academy production, and what does he bring to the role? So we're so fortunate to have the radio personality Thomas Cage from Swing Shift Radio. He appeared in On Golden Pond for us and has returned to play Leonard. And he has that snarl and he has that biting sense of foreboding about you don't want to become me. 
So he's able to, to bring that characterization and bring that energy and bring all of that. Or how serious are you about this? Do you really want to do this? Are you sure? So he's magic. <laughs> Without spoilers, can you tell us how the romantic conflicts among the group play out? There are a couple of key romantic pairings. One is between Martin, who is the through line of the story, and Kate. And the second is between Izzy, who is sort of the femme fatale of the show, and Leonard, who's the seminar writer, and Martin. And Izzy sees the whole exercise as a game, and she's willing to do what she needs to do to win. She thinks everybody can win, but she's willing to do what she needs to do. And so she is the center of a love triangle between Leonard and Martin, and it affects Martin's ability to get his work done. Kate, I think, is the ignored flower, and sometimes one sees the flower too late. Mm. I read in one piece that Kate's writing is immediately criticized as having a narrator nobody cares about. I wonder if that's also criticism or summing up of Kate herself. Does she have to compete for attention and recognition among this motley group? Oh, I think that's absolutely a fantastic point. Her initial story is, I think, extremely self-inserty <laughs> might be the right word. And it's not particularly well done. And when it comes down to it, she is a less charismatic character than the rest of them. And she's competing both with a story that is as understated and bland as she is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of her journey is, you know, figuring out where she fits in the lit literary world. And a lot of that is by assuming a different role and becoming somebody else. Her story really is a story of transformation. Hmm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with the actor Casey Cudmore and director Robert Drake from the Academy Theater's new production of Seminar. So, Casey, we talked about how you can relate to parallels in theater that these seminar students are encountering. Robert, are there any other comparisons, or could either of you reflect upon comparisons within this story to the quick-to-judge business you are in theater and entertainment absolutely this is this is a story where leonard at first pigeonholes each of them and says that there's one one character named douglas who's the scion of a noted family and in one of the best sequences the most hilarious eviscerations in the entire show Leonard says, 
you know, you've gotten where you are because of your connections and where you went to school and how you mount very cleanly the challenges that you present for yourself. So those sorts of things, you know, did you go to the Yale School of Drama? You know, have you worked in New York? Yeah, that's how I found out about this play was I was in New York doing a show and I found when I came back to Atlanta, the fact that I'd worked in New York changed what people thought of me. I wasn't a better director. I wasn't a better actor per se, but having gone to New York changed what people thought. So this really reflects lots of different situations. I think the same is probably true for people who've worked for Coca-Cola. Once you have the Coca-Cola name on your resume, it changes how people look at you. And I think that's part of this show. I would absolutely agree with that. I think there's this huge pressure in the theater world to fit the entirety of who you are into an eight by 10 headshot that can fit into a summer stock production season, you know? Absolutely. This show is so much about social class as well as about writing. Yeah. And Robert, what you were saying about your time spent in New York didn't necessarily make you a better director, you felt, but suddenly you were viewed differently. Made me think about Frank Whithoff, the founder of the Academy Theater, because he chose Atlanta over New York, and we need regional theater. Absolutely. And Atlanta, one of the things that people don't realize is what a bounty they have here. Atlanta has so many theaters and so much opportunity to see work. And so many of our theaters split off from the Academy. And so uh, Mr. Wittow was extremely gracious to all of Atlanta in making that choice. But I think he had a mission. And his mission was to get people to really examine their lives through the theatrical experiences they had. And this show will certainly give people the opportunity to do that. They'll really be able to say what character they identify with and see whether that character's journey reflects their own. I think so many of our actors feel that way. Oh, I am this character. I see myself in this character. And hopefully our audiences will too. Mm -hmm. In seminar, do any of the writers end up earning Leonard's praise? In a strange way, they all do. One of the things about a comedy is that Shakespeare was right. All's well that ends well. <laughs> and so each of the characters gets something that they want and gets on the road to getting their work done. Izzy is able to quickly write something that makes Leonard laugh and makes him happy. And that gives the other writers a chance to do things. Douglas is given very harsh advice, but very good advice about his writing. And each of the characters ends up further toward where they want to be and more of who they're going to become. And I think that's true for Kate as well. At the beginning of the play, all of the characters have this image of like the novel author, you know, living in this 19th century tower and sending down their Pulitzer Prize winning work of art flown down by doves to the masses. And a lot of them, the story is them grappling with how that 
isn't really the world we live in anymore. And we can still make beautiful art, but you have to sidestep through this world of agents and academia and critics and find possibly less ethical, possibly less traditional ways of getting your work out there because the work and the art is what matters in the end. What does the playwright Teresa Rebeck want to convey about subjectivity in creative writing? I think that she's looking to tell us that people can see things a lot of different ways and that who the writer is prejudices our ability to take on the writing honestly. Again, the Douglas character has a successful uncle who's a writer and went to an Ivy League school and has been to exclusive writing retreats and has good publications. And so his writing is viewed very differently than Martin's writing, who lives in a poor apartment in Queens and has to take the F train into the city and has no connections and doesn't know anybody. And so his writing isn't taken the same way as Douglas's. And I think that there are varying styles too. And in these days, having a less mellifluous style is appreciated. And, the, and we go through those trends where people really want a very literate style or they want a very short Raymond Chandler style where it's all choppier. And again, those, those whims vary as time goes on. Hmm. Curious about how you all pivoted and worked through the pandemic. I know you must be very grateful, as we all are, to be back performing in person. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. The Academy did some online work, and we were very fortunate that the city of Hapeville and the Main Street board in Hapeville supported us doing work in parks. So we could still provide live work that was socially distant and then we had the opportunity to return to stages. And at first we were social distancing everybody, but we're still requiring a mask. We're all still testing regularly. We just wanna make sure that everybody has the chance to enjoy theater safely. And at least at the moment we can. And so we're gonna, we don't take that for granted as much as we used to. You know, the idea of seeing a concert in an arena or at the Fox with lots of other people used to be something we just assumed we could do safely. Now we know that's a gift, a real gift. Director Robert Drake and actor Casey Cudmore. The Academy Theater's new production of Seminar opens today and runs through May 8th. You can find out more about this show on our website, wabe.org. Two Atlanta high school students will perform at the Apollo Theater in the national finals of the next narrative monologue competition. Atlanta regional winner Linnea Kelly 
and runner-up Zaria Williams take the stage to compete in this inaugural program created by Jamil Jude, the artistic director of Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater Company. He commissioned 50 professional black playwrights to work with high school students aspiring to be in theater. For eight weeks, students around the country worked with theater professionals, strengthening their performance skills, memorizing, and rehearsing their monologues. After performing in front of a live panel, the top three highest-scoring monologues won a cash prize. The first and second winners received an all-expense-paid trip to New York City. Up to 18 students will compete at the national finals in the Apollo Theater on May 2nd. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll kick off Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with a visit from the New York Times food writer Eric Kim. His debut cookbook, Korean American, Food That Tastes Like Home, contains a mix of recipes and essays rooted in his Atlanta upbringing. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.